again on the MetaMakers podcast. This is Davis and Dylan and we're here with artists. Artists, could you please introduce yourself? I'm thrilled to be here with you guys this evening. So, <clears throat> artists, you're uh and your last name is Moon. My last name is Amarche. Mm. So it's artist Moon Amarche. Okay. Used to be Mooney. So, artists, you're a musician, you're a painter, you're artists of many different kinds. You teach yoga, you do sound. I've been to one of your classes, sessions before. Um, what got you into this artistic realm, um, more so into holistic living? What got you interested in holistic living? Um, it's been, the holistic living aspect has been kind of a natural progression over my adult life, mm -hmm. um, I wasn't really raised with those type of influences. Uh, my dad and I ate out and you know stuff a lot when I was a kid. Um, one of my first serious boyfriends, his parents were into homeopathy, and you know he grew up going to. Waldorf school they were just very naturally minded so that kind of started me on that um, path I think um, experimenting with eating vegetarian stuff like that um, and over I guess the first part of my my kind of journey into holistic living actually was dealing with food and learning about from personal experience about how food affects your body because I had a uh, always had some skin issues um, and when I was in my early 20s at one point I had a really bad rash on my back and I went to a Chinese doctor and he told me to stick out my tongue and it was coated in white and he said you're you have you know a lot of yeast in your system you need to eliminate wheat and sugar and dairy and I did mostly, for the first week, my skin completely changed. Rash went away. And so that was kind of the beginning of it, I'd say, in a way. And learning, you know, from my boyfriend at the time, from his mom, learning about homeopathic medicine and herbal tinctures. And, um, you know, back then it wasn't even called organic food, I don't think. It was just like, you know, clean food. Um, and then I also, when I lived in New York, worked with kids with autism for almost four years. And that was a big part of that journey also, because a lot of those kids had food sensitivities, um, which when eliminated from their diet really drastically impacted them. Um, so I saw, you know, I saw a lot of different ways that food and, you know, learned a lot from firsthand experience and observation about um, really how toxic our, our food supply generally is. You know, a lot of what people eat um, is really sabotaging their health. So making those changes for myself and noticing the differences and then... Um, over the years, I think as I was transitioning from leaving New York and coming back to D.C., um, my last year in New York, I met a friend of a friend who had had her babies at home, and I became intrigued by the whole home birth idea, so that also kind of brought me further into the realm of natural living, so to speak. I beca became really interested in the idea of maybe becoming a midwife, and um, and then it just progressed from there. I mean, I had been involved with also from the same boyfriend from his parents. I became involved in a uh, kind of an esoteric school, you could say, um, 
that included a lot of the principles of what we call um, in our in modern culture, you know, mindfulness. Um, but it was had its own vocabulary, so to speak. But the idea of meditation, sitting, you know, that was also introduced to me at that time in my early 20s. So um, that certainly affected me. And then when I came back to D.C., I mean, it just kind of it progressed from there. I wound up, instead of becoming a midwife, going to art school. When I came back to D.C., I was deciding between the two. But at that time, they didn't have lay midwifery in this area. So to be a midwife, you had to do um, be a nurse midwife. And I was not interested in the medical route or nursing school whatsoever. So I decided to go to art school instead. Yeah. Um, and then at some point, um, I became certified as a childbirth educator and I was going to go into kind of doing that type of work. So working with, with birth, but instead of becoming a midwife, which can be very demanding. Um, and you know, at that time, like I said, there was the obstacle of the nursing school going from the other end and really working with women in a very um, holistically minded way and very non-traditional, um, so to speak, by modern culture standards, non-traditional um, method of birth education. From that, I got a meditation training was incorporated, um, specifically yoga nidra. Mm -hmm. And so it's just been kind of an organic progression over the years. Wow. Yeah. You've been stacking your skills almost, you know. Discovering one thing is just leading to another discovery. So I was reading your website, and you seem to describe yourself as boundless, right? Like a, an eclectic artist. Can you talk a little bit more about that and where this eclecticness came from? And, mm -hmm. and you know, how did you, how do you keep that drive to keep on learning and, and uh, discovering new things? Um, it's interesting. Again, it's just kind of like it's in, it's just been part of my nature. Even when I was a little kid, I, um, you know, I just kind of took the, took things in rather voraciously. I was raised by, uh, just my dad and we were pretty poor, but he was really supportive. I was a really self-motivated kid. So, um, when it came to the arts in particular. So like when we moved back to the DC area when I was little, I saw flash dance. Mm -hmm. I was like, daddy, I want to take dance class. <laughs> I don't know if you guys are familiar with that movie, but you should see it. Um, it was a about very like a, like flash a... dance, Jennifer Beale, sexy welder chick. Oh, okay. The movie, yeah. okay, the movie, the movie flash dance. Yeah. Some of our, some of our younger viewers or listeners might not know that. So yeah. Flash dance from the eighties. Awesome. Yeah. There's this chick who is a welder, um, by day, but she's also a really amazing dancer. And so like, yeah. So I saw that movie and I was like, number one, I thought welding was really cool. I knew, I knew I wanted to do that when I grew up and I was like, dad, I want to take dance classes. But the point is my dad was really supportive. So like whatever I wanted to do, you know, he made it happen somehow. I want to take voice lessons. I want to be in this play, whatever it was, he facilitated that happening. And, um, so over, so over the years having his support growing up, and then, you know, one kind of pivotal moment for me in a way, which I talk about on my website a little bit, is uh, one of my favorite teachers, who was my choral teacher um, in high school. Senior year, I was having a bit of a, I wouldn't say identity crisis exactly, but I was just kind of trying to sort out like, what I was going to do because everybody was going off to college. A lot of my classmates were cheating their way through and I was not, I was never interested in the status quo. I always knew ever since I was a little kid that that was not for me, that I would never work in an office or wear a uniform. Um, and so my teacher, you know, he's watching me like go through this struggle and he said, you know, 
you can't do everything. You're kind of like a shotgun. Like, you know, what happens with a shotgun is all these pellets spray out in, you know, many directions. One of them might hit the target. And when he said that to me, I thought, like, the hell I can't. Like, of course I can do whatever I want to do. And because I love all of these things, like I can't, what I'm going to, so I'm just going to stop dancing because I can't do everything. I'm going to stop playing music because I can't do everything. I'm going to stop making art because I can't do everything. No, of course not. So I just became determined to like, you know, that I would figure out a way to um, make that work for me. And especially when I was coming back to DC from New York, um, it I really made a decision to figure out a way to make a living, make a good living doing what I love to do rather than having to do it as something on the side or as like, you know, I'm doing a job to pay the bills, but then I'm doing this, you know, what I, what I love in my spare time. So just the la- the last thought that I was going to say is, um, you know, you said something earlier about, that I've been amassing all this knowledge and that's, that's the thing. Like, that's what I started to find is that I've moved through, you know, an ebb and flow, like certain things have been more focus at sometimes and others, but everything I do influences everything else. The fact that I was, you know, immersed in rhythm influenced my artwork. Um, you know, it's all everything. It all influences and all of the art, all of the arts work that I've done influences the work that I'm doing now with the healing work as well, you know? And if you could just talk a little bit about, you said when you moved back from New York to DC, you started to support yourself, you know, with your creative uh, expression. So could you give a little maybe advice to people who might be out there, um, wanting to support themselves with, uh, healing work or, creative arts like how did you uh, start making money from it how did you think that that could be some way you could actually support yourself like what were your early discoveries that led to these little successes so that basically happened even before I moved to New York because what happened right after high school so um I really wanted to be I wanted to take a break after high school. I was so over it. I wound up skipping a third of my senior year literally and playing pool with my best friend Josh all night and sleeping all day. I just couldn't. I was just so over it in so many ways, but I went back and I managed to graduate. I was in, you know, I was in AP classes, but I just I didn't give a fuck about grades or any of it. So I went to college for one semester immediately after high school because my dad was worried that if I didn't at least try, that I would never go. And I gave it a try, and I was not happy. Um, for and I that could you know I could go into a whole thing on that, but it was I, I it, it affirmed that it was time for me to take a break. So in that one semester, I met a guy. He lived in an old, in his grandfather's house. He was a musician. They had jam sessions there all the time, started hanging out, wound up moving in. Um, and then we moved to New York together. But when I did that, when I decided, okay, I'm going to take a break, what was I good at? I was good at dancing. I was a, naturally a teacher. Um, and so I was like, I'm going to see if I can get a job teaching in a dance studio. Boom. This was pre-internet days, so I literally opened the phone book and cold called the two closest dance studios and, you know, made it sound like I had been assistant teaching my dance teacher already, which was like kind of true, but not really. And, you know, so bullshitting, basically, the the hustle. So, boom, they both hired me and, you know, I jumped right in and I learned, you know, like, that's how I've done most of what I've done. I just kind of, like, dive in and figure it out as I go along. Um, so that's where I started, is teaching a dance studio. So my first job, boom, I'm making $20 an hour. So I was able to make a, you know, decent living, working part-time hours. At that time, I didn't have many expenses. And then I did the same thing. When I moved up to New York, 
what, what, what does everybody do? Wait tables, right? I had never waited tables for my friend was like, just make it up. And so, you know, I just made up a couple restaurants in DC. They don't know if the, they really exist or not. Generally, I'm not a dishonest person. But you know, my high school art teacher, he said, you know, a big part of how you make it in the art world is obfuscation. That's a fancy word for bullshitting. <laughs> Could you spell that? I could. Because <laughs> I couldn't. So, yeah. So, you know, boom, did that. Then jumped in working with the autistic children. I just got an opportunity to get training on the job. My my boyfriend's brother's girlfriend was doing it. She's like, hey, I think this is something you'd be interested in. My first job, it was like, you know, training was you're getting paid seven fifty an hour. That's nothing. But then boom, 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 boom. Three and a half years later, I was getting paid 50 bucks an hour. So again, able to make a full-time, you know, as a single person, full-time living, working part-time hours, leaving plenty of time for the other stuff that I love. So that worked for a while, but I was still doing another job, right, to have time to do. That's not entirely true. So also while I was there, I did other teaching. When I was in New York, I did stuff in in the public schools it worked with the tap company did a lot of like touring residencies workshops performances i did a lot of that type of stuff too um but the work with the kids with autism was was pretty good consistent money and then when i came back here then i just boom i got a job at a dance studio um somebody had been my former teacher actually had opened a studio so while i was going to the corcoran that's what I was doing. I was teaching tap six days a week. And, um, you know, every time, you know, it's just been, yeah, a matter of like, what do I want to do and just kind of make it happen, you know, with the healing arts as well. Like I've pretty much put myself through a master's in, um, you know, food as medicine, um, just wellness in general. You know, I've covered a lot of areas. I've done a lot of studying on my own. Um, yeah. Having the discipline, you know, early on and, and taking that first step just leads to that second step, it seems like. And I think that's what you're really good at is just continuing and, you know, going back to these things that you love and asking yourself, what do, you wa- what do I love and what do I want to do? Which definitely shows in your lifestyle. We're in your house right now and... It's full of art, and you guys can't see this, but there's pretty much no white space on the walls. You know, that's what she said. She wanted to take up the whole house and put art everywhere. It's quite calming to be here. Thank you. So, who are some of your role models? Hmm. And why? <laughs> that's a really good question. I don't know if I have an answer for that. It sounds like you're your own role model, almost. Like, you're talking about manifestation, essentially. You want something, just make it happen. I mean, me and Dylan talk about that all the time. And, you know, within reason, there are certain limitations. But ultimately, working backwards from what you want, and that's what you said. Like, figure out what you want. And then once you figure out what you want, you have to like work backwards and so do you have any specific people or inspirations maybe not even people but like you had to have been inspired to be like that somehow I so I do I think I think it's two things part of it I think is really just my soul it's just who I am Um, cause even when you used the word discipline, like there's something in me that balks at that, but I have to admit, yes, there was a discipline that I had as a child. Like I wanted to take dance classes. I showed up three, four days a week. By the time I could drive, I was taking class all over the damn place. Um, but I did like friends have remarked to me, friends that were around, especially in high school, that it seems like I basically raised myself to a large degree. Um, so in thinking of like role model, yeah, I don't know. There are people that I consider, um, 
to be like spiritual teachers in my life or spiritual guides um, who I definitely would say have had a major influence on me. Um, but I can't really think of anybody that, I mean, I feel kind of bad. I feel like there's somebody that I should be able to say like, yeah, that person is my role model. I look up to that person. I I think there's a lot of truth in that. Um, everyone is better than you at something and everyone is better than me at something. You know, there's always going to be something that we can learn from other people. Like even if there's, even in the most like, I don't know. I feel like there's always something that you can find from every situation, like a silver lining um, or just flat out inspiration from some aspect of a person. Um, and then we can like mix and match and, and take pieces from other people you know, or not take, but you know, um, Share. mimic, I guess, mm-hmm. inspirational, yeah. a, you know, aspects of people and then kind of become our own person. That sounds exactly right on for me. I feel like that I have, um, always been, yeah, like I learned something from every single person I interact with, even people that I don't even get a chance to talk to, people that I pass on the street. Um, And I've always been that way since I was a kid, you know, including like, you know, bad experiences that I've had. I try to learn from like, what was, what was the lesson? What was the lesson here? So I want to ask you something. Um, you said that a lot of your life felt like you were raising yourself and it sounds like you're very, very independent, which is awesome. Um, they're, you know, the most successful people have failed the most, they say. So could you share um, a time that was particularly painful and that that you got through? Obviously, you're here right now, so you got through it. But what was the internal dialogue and could you describe the experience and what helped you the most? Hmm. So very real talk. Um, I'd say probably one of the most painful things that I've been through is living through life with an addict um, and watching somebody that I know and love really change and become a very different person than the person that I thought that I knew. Um, And having to realize that I couldn't save this person and that that's not my job, that only only they can save themselves. And I did pretty much everything I could. I mean, I did a lot. I really, really, really tried. Um, and having to walk away, having to, like, you know, finally, after years and years, years, of saying I can't live this way anymore, finally having the strength to just walk away and make that change was simultaneously very powerful and very empowering. Um, And I actually went through that twice. Um, And the support that I had the first time was my father was able to really be there for me and help me through it in many ways, including practically help me get to a safe place. Um, the second time that I went through it, it was more difficult because my dad has dementia and he's always been like one of my main confidants. And he's at the point where I, we can't have those same kind of conversations anymore because he doesn't even remember, you know, five minutes to the next five minutes, like what the situation is. Um, but I will say, and so I'll say another big part of what really helped me get through that actually, um, which is somebody that came to my mind when you said role model, even though I don't know her, um, is Pima Chodron, who is a Buddhist nun and author, 
um, that has definitely been a huge um, source of peace, finding peace in the middle of the shit. Mm. Um, she has a book that's called When Things Fall Apart that um, really saved my, um, saved me from having a mental breakdown. Like literally during some really difficult times, when especially when I first moved into this house. Um, just finding ways to um, just be able to be at peace regardless of what kind of chaos is swirling around you. And that's something that I've had a lot of practice at in my life, but yeah. So how did you know, you know, that it was time to let this person leave your life like what was can you talk about that moment that you, that you had that self-actualization so in this case it was actually a long time coming because we were together all together for um nine years and seven years were pretty rough um and towards the end basically you know in part if there weren't kids involved I might not have left. I might have stayed. In the, I mean, and it was hell. Like a good portion of that time was hell. And this is somebody that I love very deeply, even still. Um, so that, I think, you know, and I find this, you know, it's always easier for us to be in a way to be responsible to somebody outside of ourselves or be more caring about somebody outside of ourselves and even ourselves sometimes. So having the the children be in this environment and knowing that um, it was really unhealthy and that this is a cycle of abuse that needed to be broken because these things pass, right? Nobody wants to pass that on. So in this case, I had kind of given like a final ultimatum, like, you know, I've got to see some major change by, you know, this, this month. And it wasn't really happening and then there was a big incident that happened and he came home and, and blew up and mm. I left that night. And it's so ironic because you are a healer and yeah. you know, to have that moment when you know that you can't heal someone is that must be a really hard battle with yourself because that is your profession and, and it's your internal desire. But you've reached that moment when you know you couldn't heal someone I think that's a very uh, important moment yeah. so actually at that time I had not really fully stepped onto embracing my path as a healer yet I was still I had been still more immersed in the arts um, I did photography during a good portion of the time that we were together and really wanting to move in this direction um, I actually was in the beginning of launching my healing arts business when I realized that I had to go. And so that delayed things for another year and a half or so. Um, but it was very, it was a big lesson in the fact that you can't heal somebody that doesn't want to be healed. And in, and in um, using that, that desire to help other people in an appropriate way. And I went through some experiences with um, a couple of other, um, like a, a, a shaman in particular, this woman that I had a couple sessions with, that really helped me to realize that I have been a healer my whole life, but I've been using it in kind of a dysfunctional way. I didn't have an appropriate outlet for it. And so shifting to doing this professionally has really allowed me to understand the whole experience has just allowed me to understand much better about boundaries and you know how to keep healthy boundaries and the fact that that's okay that's been something that I think has I've really struggled with because when I was younger I tended to be just really wide open and you know loving and trusting of everybody and want to believe everybody's right at boundless exactly boundless, like yeah. that's the whole thing like yeah so learning how to you know draw a line in the sand rather than just in the air like nebulously somewhere here like being very clear like 
this is what is acceptable to me and this is what is not acceptable. I feel like it's kind of like petting a cat. If you really want to pet the cat and the cat is just not down and the cat has been pet or is eating or like, you know, just doesn't want to be pet and you like really just have all this love and like, you should just get a dog, you know, <laughs> at that point. And I think that's situational. It's obviously a metaphor, but like I've found myself giving a lot of energy to people that are, it's not being reciprocated. Exactly. And I don't care. Like I've got to the point, you know, I think the same point where it's like, is this serving me? Because I want to help other people too, but I can't help other people if I'm hurting, if I'm like, incomplete and if i'm continually filling other people's glass Mm -hmm. it's good when they can fill their own glass as well and it's okay to fill their glass here and there just make sure that that energy is coming back it's like yeah it's tough you know especially for someone that you spend so much time with and that you shared deep experiences with um just recognizing when it's time to invest our energy in new gardens. Yeah. And um, also what you said about, you know, they can fill their own cup. Like that was a big part of it is, is realizing that um, sometimes in those situations, even if the person is asking for your help and they think that they want your help, if they're not ready to do the work and you're trying to do it Mm. for them, you're actually disempowering them. It's not helping them because it's, it's, it just disempowers them. It puts them in a place where then they're just expecting somebody else to carry that burden for them. And I think it's really important to, um, yeah, let people, you know, find their way to carry their own burden if they need help and they're willing to receive help that's one thing but that that um, exchange of energy that you're talking about is really important because especially if you're somebody that's wide open like what I learned is mm-hmm. people will come and they'll suck you dry I mean at the like after that situation I mean I literally like once I started to come alive again I felt like oh my god I've been like almost dead mm-hmm. like, close to dead inside which is so not who I am you know yeah it's like rose colored glasses as I've heard it before <laughs> can happen for people can happen for ideas or even businesses for some people that are just strictly driven by money or certain desires I don't know mm-hmm. Wow. and I feel like that gets really hard too especially if the person is like yeah I want to get help and even friends like they'll say certain things and then do different things so over text it's like oh look I got a text this person wants to do this and then you got to do your like Sherlock Holmes work to find out that they're not actually doing what they say that they're doing because me personally, I'm I'm usually excited. I have a lot of energy. I'm usually, you know, fired up and ready to go. And people will be like, oh, yeah, let's do that. I'm down. Let's make it happen. And <laughs> you just have to wait until they actually start showing up. So, artists, <clears throat> could you tell us more about the work that you do with cognitive behavioral therapy? Mm-hmm. Um, so, cognitive behavioral therapy is also called CBT for short. That is one of the newer tools in my to- toolkit. Um, and it's not... It's something that I do offer as a discrete service, but so far I haven't had any clients come to me and be like, I just want CBT. I just want it. 
um, so I had heard about it for, you know, for years. I heard that it was a really effective modality, actually, in, in, in researching help for, you know, my former partner. Mm-hmm. Um, and once I studied it, I found, I felt like a lot of the principles and techniques are stuff that I already have been doing naturally with people. Um, most of my life, um, just in terms of the, the way I help people when people come to me. I've always been that person that like friends come to when they need advice, they need somebody to talk to. So cognitive behavioral therapy is basically, in essence, it's about identifying the ways in which your thoughts and your, your thoughts in particular are limiting your life. Um, negative conditioning, behavioral patterns. So identifying kind of the, the, the underlying feelings behind it. And once you start to become aware of the thoughts and what's underlying your behavior, um, then you can start to change it. But I would say that, um, I incorporate, for the most part, I incorporate CBT into um, my work with people in a kind of an organic way. Um, And sometimes if they are dealing with something in particular that I think CBT would be useful for getting unstuck, um, then I might bring in a specific method or technique from CBT. Could you give us an example of something that you might use CBT for or like some negative situation that someone might be in that CBT might be able to help them with? Um, so if somebody ha- is really like a simple example would be say somebody is really struggling with self-esteem issues um more than the average person in such a way that it is kind of debilitating them in some way um or they just you know they're obsessing over they're very very self-critical um i would look to you know it start kind of digging like what what are the underlying um, causes of that, which typically, you know, it has to do with conditioning from somebody at some point in your childhood, somehow making you feel unworthy, making you feel not good enough or whatever. But most of the time that we're, you know, and everybody deals with that to some degree, right? But some people more than others. So, um, so you find the underlying cause and then you just start to kind of just like, analyze the train of thought almost and just keep following it and following it and following it until you, it, you you're leading them by question until they just realize that it's this thought that they're having is not really true it's not really true um so that's that's just one example there's also you know there's like uh there's some worksheets that I can give people which work well, especially for people that are kind of more, which one is it? Right. I always forget right brain, left brain, people that are more academically oriented, you know, that like that type of thing. Um, but yeah, so far CBT has not been a huge part of my practice. I would say more it's an influence. So could you describe <laughs> a, like a typical session um, mm-hmm. nowadays with you? Yeah. So, um, most of the clients and occasionally I have people for a one-off Reiki session. Um, but most of my clients these days are working with me for, you know, short term or long term, but at least a set of seven sessions. Mm, um, what's that? That's a very good number. Yes. I'm a numbers person too. So at least, you know, I, I, I offer bundles of seven sessions. So typically they'll kind of go with me. I have one client that's been working with me ongoing for a year now. Actually, it's been over a year. Um, so typically, like if I'm working with somebody 
you know, somewhat ongoing or regularly, not just a one-off. Usually those will be two or three hour sessions. My three hour sessions are my favorite because I get a chance to really dive in and play with a number of modalities and not feel rushed at all. So in a two or three hour session, usually um, we'll start with an opening meditation to just kind of get centered and grounded, bring them down into their body so they're not too up in their mind when they're talking. And then the first hour um, will be, it'll be a check-in. Um, we'll, we'll be talking. If I'm going to be working with them kind of on a longer-term basis, and I know that they've got some things to unravel, there's a history of trauma, um, more involved trauma. I mean, it, pretty much everybody has trauma in one sort or another. But those that are dealing with more intensive trauma, um I usually do a fairly comprehensive intake with people that are working with me one-on-one. So the beginning sessions, and sometimes the intake will take the first two, three, four sessions. In the beginning sessions, part of that talking, um, I'm getting an idea first of just like simple things, like what are your short and long-term goals, medium-term goals? Um, Life coaching is 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 a big influence as well in the way that I'm working with people. So getting a snapshot of like, where are you at in your life right now? If you could sum it up in a sentence or two. And then getting in a little more detail, give me a snapshot of your physical health, your emotional health, your mental health, and your spiritual health, and get a sense of what their spiritual orientation is. Um, Because the work that I do transcends religious orientation, but it's just good to know what somebody's orientation is because also that helps me kind of word things in a vocabulary that resonates with them right sometimes and then in cases where there's more intensive trauma then i'll go um, or i feel like there are things buried in childhood that are definitely impacting them Mm -hmm. then i go into life story and we look we start from in the womb how their mother was um what kind of situation was mom in when she was pregnant with you and then look at your life in seven year chunks and in that stage often sometimes I'll have um, them draw so rather than just sit there and try to sum up well my first seven years of life I'll say okay we're going to take 10 minutes just draw draw you know if words come out too but just imagery that represents that first period of your life and then the 7 to 14 and 14 to 21 and then from there kind of 21 to wherever they are but what happens when they do that is it just it draws things out in a different way and it allows them to kind of be a little bit more succinct Mm -hmm. with describing that period so I'll go through that, and then there's a check-in portion where just more talking about, like, if I've been seeing them, how things have been going with them, anything that they want to share, just like they would with a talk therapist. People just need to talk, you know, in part. And that is part of what has made me... And be heard. Exactly. People need to be heard. They need to be seen. They need to be heard. They need to be honored. So the talking portion we might be talking about, like, anything that's come up with them for whatever homework that I've given them or any challenges, you know, whatever they want to talk about. And then typically um, I'll get them on the massage table and do a Reiki session, depending on how much time we have. That's going to be like 30 minutes to an hour. Um, Sometimes I do guided meditation while I'm doing the Reiki. Sometimes I do some sound work. I always do some cleansing, you know, smudging with smoke. Um, what type of herbs do you like to use? Mostly mostly I use Palo Santo, mm-hmm. um, which for people that don't know, Palo Santo is a, it's indigenous to Central and South America, and it's a, from a tree that's in the citrus family. And Palo Santo is not cut for the purpose of burning. They only collect um, from down trees. And it is more powerful than sage for for clearing a space. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of a gist. Occasionally I'll do Reiki first, but most of the time we talk first. There might be some sound healing involved. Sometimes we mix in some little tarot 
Um, every session, even with the same client, is different. I actually had the pleasure of uh, attending just a short session with you and Karina at the Eaton Wellness. Yeah, I think it was and a meditation and sound bath. Mm-hmm, it was great. I mean, I've only done a few like meditation and yoga classes and stuff like that. I'm I'm getting into that world, but um you had some like coloring pencils and we were drawing things and I still have that paper by the way. It's in it's in our meta, it's in our manifestation box. <laughs> and it's working by the way. Awesome. Um but yeah, I th- I thought that was great. I mean, I got to draw a little bit. There was sound, there was a little bit of stretching, meditation, a little bit of guided. Um you had like different. It was very like all encompassing. I think that's really incredible. Um because a lot of people just focus on doing one. I mean, you're even adding these questions and listening. You're like uh, more than just a therapist, like you're everything artist. The um <laughs> life coaching definitely has influenced the way that I guide the meditations mm. and I really enjoy that. Yeah. And I have had people tell me that they got more were able to work through more in my sound baths in a couple months than three or four years of therapy. And wow. that's just that's not one on one work. That's just coming to my sound baths. Wow. So. Wow. Well so when I was looking at your website, the quote that really stood out to me was Creativity is our birthright. It is an integral part of being human, as basic as walking, talking, and thinking. The creative process, like a spiritual journey, is intuitive, nonlinear, and experiential. It points us in toward our essential nature, which is a reflection of the boundless creativity of the universe. Mm-hmm. And that's by John Laurie. Can you talk a little bit about, about like, the creative why why you include the creative process and a little bit more about your experience with that in your sessions yeah again it's been um kind of a natural and organic progression of this work as i've been exploring like what is it that i do with people what do i want to do with people how do i want to help people make a shift in their life whatever that looks like so I believe that everybody is an artist. Everybody has it in them. Some people have had it squelched out of them in one way or another. Some people are named artists. Some people are named artists. <laughs> without the T. Without the T on the end, yes. And I didn't have that name until I was at least six weeks old, apparently, but that's another story. Um, but I think that... Um, just being creative in any way, number one, really helps you get out of your head. It helps you be in a more integrated state with yourself. Um, and visual imagery in particular is so valuable for being able to communicate thoughts and feelings from that nonverbal place in ourself. Um, Music as well, like just being able to go into those states. Um, and as as we already said, like people need to be heard. People need to be seen and they need to be heard. And I think people are t- way too caught up in perfectionism and fear around the arts, in particular people that don't have experience. So I really like having little ways to just kind of slip it in on people almost unsuspectingly and um so that they don't get they don't get time to think about like oh i'm afraid of it or i'm not an artist like no just play it's about it's not about perfectionism it's about playing and exploring um that's my dad shuffling around in the background Uh, and i loved on your website you actually mentioned yeah instead of perfectionism you'd rather have creationism and just to create more instead of perfect what you've created in the past. Yeah, yeah. It's always been, for me, it's about the process, not the product. The product is a pleasant, Mm. you know, result Mm. of the process, and sometimes the product is amazing and brilliant, and sometimes it's shit, and who cares? (laughs) 
that's the thing. Who cares? Did you have fun? You know, and, and yes, they did. They did have fun. You know, they always do. Even the ones that come in and they're like, uh, I, I've never done this before. You know? <laughs> Even when I like when I teach art classes, I love to do the assignments like blind contour drawings and partial blind contour drawings that help people just get out of that perfectionism mind, mindset and and get in the spirit of just playing and exploring. Mm. So I'm glad that you brought that up because we are in the business of fun. We specialize in it. <laughs> so do you have a game that you like to play with uh, your clients? And because you said you like to incorporate creativity without them really knowing. Mm -hmm. That's kind of what we do with like practical knowledge. People learn at our events. They don't really realize it because mm -hmm. it's fun. Mm -hmm. So like, could you give an example of a game that you might like to play with your clients? Hmm. And if there is a game that we could play now, maybe. <laughs> a game that we could play now. So number one, I will say that what you just described uh, is very much like how a lot of people homeschool their kids. That's how, you know, we were, that's how we were doing things when I was homeschooling my kids. It's like kids are learning all, all sorts of scenarios where that's the case, where they're learning, they're, they're having fun. They don't realize that they're learning, so to speak. Um, I would say as a teacher, I have had a tendency to be kind of serious a lot of the time. Um, <laughs> I, don't, I don't see that in you. Honestly. You can see that. Yeah. I, I, it's, don't. I don't. You I, don't I, see I, that I, in I me. Feel, I feel the playfulness. In this. Yeah, I can be playful, but I can be serious sometimes. I have to catch myself sometimes and like... Um, but I do, so, you know, there are mindfulness games, um, in terms of games, like that's, that's, there's a whole world of that. Um, th so there's mindfulness games. So I'm trying to think of, I don't know if there's one that we could play together right now. <laughs> let me think. Um, you can just describe it. I'm just well, yeah, curious. I'll just describe it. So there's, there's one that's, that's always pretty interesting. Um, you have a room full of strangers, room, you have room full of people. You have people pair up, but they have to pair up with somebody that they don't know. And you put the timer on and they, you have to talk. So first one person is the talker and one person is the listener. And you put the timer on for something that's like three minutes and the talker has to just talk and keep talking and not talk, not not stop talking. And the other person is not allowed to respond at all, not say anything and try not to respond even with facial expression, nodding your head, um, anything. This is a good just one. listen. And then you trade places and people really enjoy that when people are, you know, usually laughing at the end. Um, it's very interesting to experience what that feels like. And it's a, gr that, that one is a really great one to kind of make people more aware of their empathic nature. People that are not necessarily aware because they start to notice like how uncomfortable it feels to not be giving Sometimes people are like pouring their heart out. Sometimes it's just mundane, but sometimes somebody just had a really hard day and they're, you know, and to not express like some form of empathy or at least like nod your head, you know, all of those habitual things. So it's a great one just for self-awareness and for um, your empathy. There's other ones like take, have them put again in pairs with strangers and one person has to keep their eyes closed and the other person has to guide them, take them on a tour around whatever space that you're in for five minutes, just walk them around and then they trade. And that one is pretty interesting too because some people are nervous, trust, you know, that one gets a lot of laughter. So for that first one, do you have them keep consistent eye contact? Cause yes. Yeah, when I, when I was in New Zealand, they had they did a lot of this was pushing strangers to look each other in the eye for yeah. prolonged 
you know, amount of time and it made a lot of people uncomfortable. Yeah. So <laughs> it's really fun to actually yeah. push people to do that in the scenarios. And I can't imagine what they're talking to if someone would just. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's Can great. you imagine if you got someone with like those eyes that pop out of their head and you had to look at them for three minutes like that <laughs> with no reaction? It gets pretty intense at these, you know, bigger events because people are in all different states, you know, and they're showing up to these workshops. They can, people might not be ready for that prolonged eye contact, but it really pushes them. <laughs> so, it's, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, artists, thank you for sharing this conversation with us. I mean, we went on a roller coaster of emotions with you. It was definitely enjoyable. Um, I certainly will be attending another session. For those uh, people that would want to attend a session, what's uh, one of the best ways to get in touch with you? Um, the easiest way to see anything that I have going on currently is to go to my link tree clearly visit my website to find out more information. Um, my website is theboundlesslife.net. That's obviously on my link tree. Um, so link, my link tree is, uh, I guess not everybody knows what link tree is, right? It's link T-R-I-L-I-N-K-T-R dot E-E. You're going to do a link to yeah, it. We'll, we'll yeah, we'll drop you're a link. link to it. Plus the boundless Wait, the boundlesslife.net dot is very is easy my to website. Remember. Yeah, <laughs> and I'm on Instagram as, at the Boundless Life, so I post a lot of the stuff that I have. So That's I do. Cool. I have <clears throat> three classes um, regularly: Wednesday night and Saturday um, late morning at Take Five, and in DC. Yeah, at in DC, um, just north of Dupont, and I incorporate sound into all of my classes so all three of those are guided meditation the wednesday night one is a yoga nidra sound bath so that one has the most sound and then um i have special workshops and stuff too that come up i'll be doing actually we just decided the date today i'll be doing a sound bath at embrace dc may 25th but i do have a reiki workshop coming up please plug it when is that um that is starting april 17th um, and that's, there's, so on my link tree, it has like a link to my website and then any of the individual workshops that I'm doing is always on there to just make it quick and easy to find them. And the Reiki workshop that I'm doing is actually a combination of Reiki one. It's a Reiki one certification, but I'm also combining it with, um, cultivating self-care. So rather than doing a one-off one day workshop, I'm doing it as a four session spanning five weeks. And, um, yeah. Lots of information there. Uh, yeah. One of the last questions I'll have for you is, um, what's one of the books you recommend most to people? If people want to you know, continue their learning um, this healing space, like what's one book that's really you know, touched you as, as something like your, your Bible? Like what's your, the book that really you, you recommend most to people? I would say... The number one book that I would recommend to most people, I think that it should be a primer for life on earth for everybody, is Eckhart Tolle, A New Earth. Awakening, I think the subtitle is Awakening to Your Life's Purpose or something to that effect. Mm-hmm. But um, Eckhart Tolle, so I wouldn't, for me personally, I wouldn't say that's like my Bible. A lot of the stuff that he talks about um, is not necessarily new information for me, but I think it's articulated in such a great way that it's accessible to anybody. Um, And he really puts principles of spirituality and mindfulness in, um, you know, he's just great at putting it in layman's terms so that anybody can get it. And he gives a lot of like practical examples, kind of like Pima Chodron, the book that I mentioned earlier, those two books, I would say. Um, But Eckhart Tolle, definitely. A New Earth, The Power of Now is also really great. Um, Yeah. Amazing. Thank you, artists. Again, um, people, I hope, uh, are as just excited as me to come to one of your sessions. Um, But hopefully we'll see you at one of our events coming up soon. 
And, I would um, love to be at one of your yeah. events. And uh, yeah, as always, if you want to check out anything we have going on, we're working on our website right now. So there's a lot of new things being added. We have some really exciting events coming up. Um, check out our website. It's M-E-T-T-A creative.world that's metacreative.world and we're on all the social media as meta makers m-e-t-t-a makers and once again this has been an episode of the meta makers podcast collaborative arts inspiring sustainability thanks for joining